0: Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Tricida from NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my friend, colleague and guest,
1: Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and NHS Somerset mental health lead.
0: Peter, very warm welcome to you today, because we're going to talk about older people's mental health. And I know you're a published author from the point of view of a novel you'd written, but I was just realising that there's a there's something on the NHS England and NHS Improvement website from 2017: Mental Health in Older People, a practice primer. Tell us about that, and tell us about your background that leads you into all these all these areas of interest
1: and expertise, please. Yes, well, I was um, delighted to be asked to contribute to that um, amongst uh, people a lot more expert than me, but trying to give the the, the GP's view on it. So. Uh, it's basically a, a, a guide mainly for GPs um, because I don't know about you, Andrew, but I was taught very little about older persons' mental health and how it differed from mental health in, in younger people. And increasingly, we realize now, firstly, that um, people with who are older with mental health problems do really, really well in terms of treatments, but are underrepresented and also that they often present in a completely different way from younger people, so it, it's become a a bit of a, a subspecialty. And
0: we'll unpack some of that presently. But just let's go back, Peter. What interested you? You've been a GP for many years. GPs see a whole range of things, from snotty children to very ill people to um, to uh, heart attacks, to uh, elder people with falls, to chest infections, to all sorts of ranges of unusual presentations. How come you've got an interest in
1: mental health and older persons' mental health? Well, the mental health thing really stems from childhood when I had memories of visiting my aunt, um, who would become unwell every 10 years or so and would need ECT, uh, electroconvulsive therapy, in the local mental health hospital. So I, I grew up with that, and my, my mother had a an interest in the mind, and I've always been interested in the mind and body, which is why I've written a novel about it. It's uh, it's just something that always fascinates. And the name me. of
0: the novel, Peter?
1: Oh, uh, D- daggers of the mind. Available on Amazon, yes. And it it's sort of looking at, at mental health, but it it hopefully does it in a in a a thriller way. So. Yes. I certainly enjoyed it as a read. Thank so you. coming more on to so
0: you've written that Primer, which was, which was an NHS England uh, publication for, to support GPs and, and primary care. But you've had an interest for many years in this, not just as a GP, but as a commissioner and as a supporter uh, of services. Uh, and tell us a little bit about that before we start looking at some of the topics in particular.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I've always had this interest. And and when CCGs were, were set up, I said, look, I've got an interest in mental health if you want me to contribute in any way. And and suddenly I found myself being asked to to be the, the mental health lead and then the dementia lead and then the uh, LD lead. And, and I've become increasingly interested in that. And I'm now fascinated in the way the brain influences the body and the way the, the two interact. And we talked about, a lot about this haven't we andrew about you know how a healthy mind keeps a body healthy and vice absolutely. versa absolutely
0: and one of the things that can happen is that our mood changes um, and into a depressive state um firstly is this common in older people and secondly does it look the same as it does in a younger person is
1: it are there differences is it well recognized is it well treated Gosh, that's a lot of questions. I'll, I'll try and remember them in order. So yes, it is very common. Um, so the figures they usually quote are that about one in five people over 65 uh, have depression, that that doubles if you have a, a coexisting illness of of some sort, and that it trebles if you're in a nursing home or a hospital. So that means... You know, 60% of people in nursing homes or hospitals are probably clinically depressed. The second part of your question was whether it's well-recognized. And sadly, it's absolutely not. So when I learned these figures as I was doing the book, um, I looked through my own list and found that really very few of my own patients were recognized as having depression. And I, I think that's because if somebody is in a nursing home and they're depressed, they sit quietly in the corner, and and so nobody really recognizes it as a problem. And if you ask them, "Do you feel low? Do you feel depressed? Do you, do you have a low mood?" Um, then a lot of them will say, "Well, yes, of course I do, because you know I've, I've lost my my partner. I'm 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 well. I'm I feel very frail. I'm I'm in a nursing home. I've lost my independence. So why wouldn't I feel depressed?" So a lot of both professionals and families. And the people themselves don't recognise that this is a, a clinical syndrome that can be treated.
0: And before we move on to treatment, just I just wanted to draw a, a difference between what used to be termed as endogenous depression and reactive depression. Because if we've had a number of life changes, such as uh, moving into a nursing home or losing our independence or losing a spouse, We go through a phase of mourning uh, and that's that's a usual normal reaction. At what point does that become a biological depression or something that needs specific treatment?
1: I can only really give a, a personal opinion on that, which is that I think it's much more blurred than we were taught. So they've questioned, for instance, the, the serotonin theory of depression, the, this idea that it's a lack of serotonin chemicals causing endogenous depression. And the evidence around that is starting to look a bit shaky. So I think most people would say it's not a black and white one or the other. But you certainly, in particularly in older people, you can get depression coming out of the blue and looking very different. So you asked if it presented in a different way and picking up on that yes it absolutely often does so people will tend not to talk about a low mood they will sometimes have physical symptoms and say well i feel pain everywhere i feel exhausted my bowels don't work Um, it's that sort of physical thing that will often present but to answer the question about that sliding scale between normal feeling of of sadness and depression, it's really when you have anhedonia, so that feeling that nothing is enjoyable, uh, that that there's nothing that you can do that you enjoy. And one of my co-authors on on the book um, had this wonderful uh, grandparent test Uh, He said, if you stop enjoying your grandparent, your grandchildren visiting you, you're probably severely depressed. That's Alistair Burns, who's our our, our national clinical lead for dementia and older people's mental health. Fantastic chap.
0: Thank you. And the other biological features, you've mentioned a number there, which can, are symptoms, but uh, there can be weight loss. There can be a change in appetite. There can be persistent low mood there can be a change in mood through the day. So it starts very low and it lifts. And I don't know about the next one, whether this is particularly relevant to older people, a change in ability to concentrate. Uh, Almost so it looks as though um, one's becoming cognitively impaired, one's losing the ability to think clearly.
1: And that's certainly something that I'm sure you've seen as as all of us who are gps and it's something we discuss actually in the handbook but it can be almost impossible to tell between the the slowing the dullness that we get with cognitive impairment and dementia and depression and in fact my rule of thumb was if somebody came into me and said i think i've got dementia probably they didn't because they were recognizing um this slowing of thought process and and that was often anxiety or depression
0: so coming on to treatment there'll be a whole range of treatments um and getting the environment right having stimulation in the place where you are um, both intellectual stimulation social stimulation having people around talking to you doing hobbies is is important perhaps doing some exercise uh and those are the sort of the softer end of the scale. Would you add anything else at the at the sort of the low intensity intervention level?
1: Yes. I mean, all the things that we've talked about on podcasts that, that help younger people help older people as well. Now, obviously, for some people, uh, exercise can be difficult, but even just getting outside in the open air and, and looking at nature um, is it, hugely helpful. So all of those things really, really important. Keeping as active as you're able to, uh, even within the limitations of of what can sometimes be a pain in the joints and that sort of thing.
0: And then moving on to the more medical appro- uh, medical approaches when the simple things haven't helped. What what would those be? Uh, what would be the the standard approaches with a, an ingrained depression that needs treating?
1: Well, traditionally, GPs would tend to reach for a prescription pad. And in particular, we've got the the SSRI group of antidepressant serotonin reuptake inhibitors. But NICE has now come out with guidelines for treatment of depression, Um, NG222, if people are interested, uh, where it says that for mild to moderate depression, we shouldn't be looking at medication. As the first line, we should be looking at talking therapies as the number one treatment and CBT that we've discussed before, as is probably the the best known of those. And one of the the real sadnesses to me is that if you look at the number of people with depression and the number of people getting talking therapies, then older people are very much um, underrepresented in terms of access to talking therapies even though it's been shown that those talking therapies are as effective in older people and that older people are actually more likely to stick with the course of treatment and benefit.
0: That's really interesting and helpful. And thinking about mental health symptoms, mental illness symptoms in general, as we get older, are there some that we get more of? Are there there any that we tend to see less commonly in older people?
1: Yes. So, as I say, depression is commoner in older people than in the general population. Um, Anxiety often will get a little bit better, particularly, say, somebody who's got maybe borderline personality disorder where you have extreme anxiety. That tends to get gradually better as time goes by, as do uh, panic attacks, um, because people learn. Uh, that that they go through a, a panic attack, a feeling of anxiety. And although they feel as though they're going to die, they don't. So they will gradually learn from that and become less anxious. Having said that, some people do get anxious in older age, and that can sometimes be an early marker of dementia coming along. That can sometimes present with mood changes in the early stages.
0: Interesting that's fascinating thank you i know we've covered dementia before and so perhaps we'll focus on the the other aspects uh, in older people today but just thinking about if we're unwell all parts of the body are affected but let's say we have an infection what happens what happens to our brain if we've got an infection whether it's a chest infection
1: or a urine infection how might that m- might that present well i i was um Uh, giving a talk about this actually and uh, cited an example of a a 23 year old who um, was admitted to an acute hospital thought to have psychosis and actually turned out to have an encephalitis an inflammation of the brain so at any age sepsis acute infection can make us unwell both physically and mentally and can is in the differential diagnosis of psychosis in older people it's much more likely to happen. So we're much more likely to get, for instance, a urinary tract infection when we're older that simply presents with us becoming more confused rather than the the classic burning dysuria going frequently that that we get if we get a a urinary tract infection when we're younger. So yes, absolutely, a a physical illness can have an effect on lots of parts of the, the body and the brain is one of the things that it can have an effect on. And, and that will often present with confusion. So, if I find an older relative who's
0: suddenly become confused, that infection should be somewhere on the list of. of rather than thinking, "Oh dear, their their dementia is rapidly worsening," or there's there's a, there's a, a brain condition that's primary, I should be thinking about this that the the mental change being a secondary potentially absolutely
1: and again it's something i'm sure we've we've both seen a lot where you have somebody who maybe has a bit of confusion and then they become more confused and we just assume that it's part of that underlying process but if it's a a sudden change an acute change happening over a period of, of days rather than months then it's much more likely to be an underlying infection so you should seek infection until proved otherwise in somebody like that.
0: And I know there are other diagnoses that we could talk about, the the causes of acute confusional states, uh, and perhaps we'll look at those in a a moment. But thinking about infection, classically in a younger person, infection is accompanied by fever. Mm. Is that true
1: in older people? No, no. Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up. That's an important point to make. That it's not just that older people are more likely to get confused because... um, all our systems become more fragile as as we get older. So we're more likely to be tipped over into one form of failure or the other, whether it's kidney failure or heart failure or brain failure. Um, but that these positive signs, as you say, of, of fever are often absent in older people as they are in, in young babies, for instance. So it can be very difficult to pick up sepsis. Uh, it's difficult in anyone, isn't it? But in older people, particularly, it's difficult
0: yes interesting and other causes of an acute confusional state so my my father-in-law or my grandfather or somebody is 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 suddenly not themselves they've not been themselves for two or three days and maybe we've ruled out infection but what what what's the other differentials that could be happening
1: it's any other acute physical illness and as i say i think this is something where if, if you see this, you need to contact your GP urgently. This maybe isn't the, the time to go into the, the classic textbook differential diagnosis. But I think the important yes. thing is that if somebody sees somebody becoming mentally unwell or acutely confused in a short space of time, this is a physical medical emergency and they need acute investigation to make sure they haven't had, say, a, a bleed on the brain or uh, kidney failure or, or some other metabolic condition that's made them unwell. But infection is the commonest.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you. So, Peter, changing topic slightly to a psychotic Features so psychosis where we are are not seeing reality as it is. We have disordered perceptions of reality, and maybe we have not just confusion, but we may have hallucinations or or paranoid fears. Um, do we see these sort of things in older people at all?
1: Again, much commoner, and again coming back to what you were saying earlier, Andrew about. Um, endogenous versus reactive depression. I think most of us now recognize that this this um, dichotomy we always used to draw between neurotic illness, as it was called, and psychotic illness is not the hard and fast boundary uh, that, that we used to think. And happily, neurosis is, is used much less as a label because it's so pejorative. So to give an example, I had a patient who um, had Parkinson's disease, and was on treatment for their Parkinson's disease. And they would see things at the end of their bed. And you would think, well, this is obviously schizophrenia. They're, they're seeing hallucinations. They were convinced that those things were real. Although they had a slightly different flavor from the, the sort of unpleasant um, hallucinations that, that people with schizophrenia often get. But actually, they had what's called Lewy body dementia, as a result of their parkinson's disease which often goes with it and the drugs that we gave them for their parkinson's the l-dopa um, unfortunately made their hallucinations worse um, and there's a particular condition that I, th- I think it's worth mentioning in people who have visual loss um and this is a thing called Shah's bonnet syndrome it was described quite a long time ago that Charles Bonnet wasn't a doctor, but he was I think the nephew of the person who had these hallucinations. And it seems as though if our if our organs aren't sending the brain messages of things going on outside, the brain will invent it by itself. So people with visual loss from macular degeneration or, or, or something like that will often actually see things. That are hallucinations. They're not a sign of mental illness at all. They're a purely physical phenomenon. I suppose you could say, I have an auditory hallucination because I've had tinnitus since my 20s. So (laughs) I can hear sounds that aren't there. (laughs) And I hope that's not a sign of psychosis. Uh,
0: No, no, not at all. One of the things that seems to happen these days as we get older is very often um, that we seem to collect increasing numbers of medication, whether it's for our blood pressure or for our bladders or for our our lungs or to help protect our kidneys or if we've had heart issues. Um, Are there any particular issues with medication and the brain as it ages and
1: gets older and the body gets older? A really important point, Andrew. So, yes, as our brains get older, they are more fragile. They're more vulnerable to insults of any sort. And unfortunately, the the drugs that you and I prescribe can often be quite toxic to the brain. So, as an example, I would mention anticholinergics. And you, you mentioned bladder. Well, most drugs for irritable bladder, for instance, are anticholinergics. And, and they have a particularly harmful effect on the brain. Uh, and they've actually been associated with an increase in the risk of dementia, for instance, uh, coming back to that. But anything that damps down the brain, uh, any opiate analgesics, um, any of the anti-epilepsy drugs, anything that, that damps the brain down seems to be particularly toxic uh, in older brains. So regular Deprescribing is a really important thing for GPs to remember, and it's a really important thing for patients to ask about. Say to your doctor, look, do I really need to t- be taking these tablets?
0: That's really interesting because you and I prescribe for younger people preventative when the numbers needed to treat are 50 or 100, and that means that we're we're treating 50 or 100 people in order to try and prevent something 5, 10, 20 years down the line, or to put off the likelihood of a stroke. When your brain's 80 something or 90 something, actually what matters is n equals one. It's all about me now. So, unless, unless that medication's giving positive benefit, then as doctors, we should be thinking we about de prescribing. but it's quite
1: difficult to do. And the, the guidelines say for statins or, or blood pressure medication, um, don't take into account the fact that if we're 85, the chances of us dying from some other disease unrelated is so much higher, so that the benefits from taking these preventative drugs are much lower. But yes, you're you're absolutely right. And um, when I worked in, in Bristol, the geriatrician there, if we admitted anyone to hospital, the first thing he did was take the patient off all their drugs and see what happened. And then reintroduce any that were absolutely essential, and most people got a lot better when he did that. I'm afraid, so it's a, a lesson for us all, and a lesson too for people listening who, who gradually accumulated lots of medication. Um, the more you're on, the greater the risk of side effects and interference between them. So, ask your doctor: Can I can I do without some of these tablets?
0: Absolutely. So, um, yes. Uh, we've had as our guest before Dr. Lucy Pollock, uh, geriatrician from Somerset, care of the elderly consultant from Somerset, and author of the book about getting older. And I seem to remember she talks about medication and she shows, I think, five or six medications and says, which one came first? Well, the painful knee got the anti inflammatories and that put the blood pressure up a little bit. So amlodipine came along and that made the ankle swell. So fruzamide came along. Uh, and. <laughs> Sometimes we can find that we're on multiple medication uh, to treat, to a certain extent, mm-hmm. side effects of others. And so I'm, I'm intrigued by the attitude of stop the lot
1: and see what happens. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that people at home should not do it. Suggesting- under medical supervision, of course, Absolutely. but I think it should be an aim for, for us all.
0: But the point is that actually we yeah. less may be better, yeah, less absolutely. may be more.
1: We yeah. we yeah. are more fragile in lots of ways as we get older. We don't like to think it, uh, but we are. And that means that drugs that might be safe at 20 can be dangerous at 80.
0: Yes. And thinking about health generally and keeping healthy and active as, as long as we possibly can, um, what sort of things should we be doing to keep ourselves healthy, to almost insure against any any cognitive or mental decline and to and to nourish our mm. brains.
1: And our well, we've talked about this a lot, haven't we, Andrew? And I'm pleased to say none of this stops counting as we get older. Um, so I'm a particular fan of high-intensity training. And there's now good evidence that that is safe in uh, older age and it's safe after heart attacks. They've They've done a trial recently showing that you can still do intensive training. So it's whatever you're able to do. Um, just unpack high-intensive training. intensity. So this is the idea. I, there's a lot of debate over exercise. We all know we should exercise, but there's also what sort of exercise we should do. Um, and the the general view is that doing something that raises your heart rate for maybe just 10, 20 minutes a day gives you as much benefits as walking 20 miles would or going on a marathon, Um same with nutrition you know we all know that nutrition is important but do we know what so the one that comes out top is the mediterranean diet that's got lots of olive oil lots of uh, fruit and veg low in sugar low in uh, short-chain carbohydrates this sort of thing
0: A a rainbow diet of vegetables yes
1: absolutely so all of those things and you mentioned social engagement and that's really important as we get older as well uh, and it can be a struggle if we have hearing impairment so again there's a, a, a very interesting trial showing that people who have hearing loss are more at risk of dementia and we don't quite know why whether that's social isolation but it means that if you have deafness it's worthwhile getting a hearing aid and maybe that will keep your brain healthy for longer and sleep we know is more difficult as we get older but as you know, that produces all sorts of good enzymes that help rebuild the brain and clear out all the all the rubbish, all these nasty amyloid and tau proteins.
0: Yes, interesting. So, um, thinking about activity, thinking about exercise, high intensity exercise, great. Um, but just walking in nature, good for you. Time out, looking at the, looking at whatever you can find. Um, find the local park. Find. Um, find a tree find a garden uh, find a nice walk
1: absolutely yes it it doesn't have to be yomping over the moors it, it can just be your back garden but you know we're we're talking aren't we in spring when everything is coming into life and there's new life coming and i think that's that's really good for the brain in lots of ways that lots of trials showing how beneficial it is but i think that that feeling that even though our own cycle of life might be coming towards the life, the the last chapter, that there's new life developing and evolving and uh, springing into 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 life is is a wonderful feeling.
0: And we can encourage our elder older relatives or ourselves. And um, my father-in-law has moved to near us, and he's through the winter sort of stuck in the house a bit because the weather hasn't been very clement, but. With encouragement, he he quite quickly took on the idea of just a short daily walk, and on his own, he's actually made the block that he walks around a lot bigger. And you mentioned spring, and he's had the joys of seeing the crocuses come up and the snowdrops come up and the daffodils come up uh, in other people's gardens and tulips and and the trees coming out. And just the different uh, change of environment, really, because so many of us if we are not careful we our default is that we stay in the house and we may or may not sit quite a lot and we may or may not watch television or read books or do other do other hobbies or pastimes but it seemed that um he was particularly susceptible to just that little bit of encouragement so i don't know how we build encouragement in more but
1: uh, I, I think it's partly about setting achievable goals so whatever our level of fitness whether it's high or low, we can always just push ourselves to do a little bit more, can't we? And as you were saying, he's able to do that bit more. Just just day by day, you just push yourself, even if it's hard work, and it's really rewarding to do that. And that that becomes maybe harder as we get older, but it, it, it's more important too, I think.
0: Thank you, Peter. And perhaps we've got time just for one last uh, thing to ask about before we, we run out of time. Um. The Silver Line helpline, what's what's that about?
1: Yes, so this I think was set up by Esther Ransom, wasn't it? So we know that a lot of older people, if they've been bereaved or live alone or have sensory impairment, loneliness is a huge issue for people. So I would encourage anyone who either feels that themselves or knows somebody that they think is in that situation to get out there and There are lots of local things. We know about singing for the brain, for instance. We know about talking cafes. Uh, We know about walking for health, all of those in local areas. But there's also this national The Silver Line, uh, two separate words, where you can, it's a a, a telephone line that you can ring up if you're feeling lonely. Uh, And the other resource I would mention to anyone who feels they need help uh, would be Age UK that has some great resources and, again, available uh, online. And we'll put these details up on the show notes, won't we?
0: We will indeed. And in Somerset, um, if we want help, should we think about open mental health as a way to access?
1: Yes, a- absolutely. So we have our own local uh, helpline and it's run by volunteers. It's There are no exclusion criteria. Uh, anyone with anything from feeling suicidal to just feeling lonely can ring up um the the line again. We'll give the the details. But I think you know the telephone number off by heart, don't you, Andrew?
0: Um, I think it's o one eight two three two seven six eight nine two. But we'll 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 put that in the show notes just to be just to check. And there is an o eight hundred number, which isn't engraved on my heart.
1: Um, so I think I, the, my message would be to anyone uh, feeling low, either if they are older themselves or know somebody who's older. Or a care or a relative or a friend. There's lots of help out there. So don't struggle. You don't need to be by yourself. There's help out there. Reach out and there are people looking to help you.
0: That's just great. And thank you, David. You've kindly given us the free phone number as well for Somerset Open Mental Health from Somerset's Mental Health Alliance. That's 0800 138 1692. Uh, and email support at openmentalhealth.org.uk. Is available and our Somerset Mindline web chat is available from 8 till 10, uh, 8 till 11 on uh, each evening. Uh, Lots of help, lots of encouragement, and we need to cherish our elderly. Um, You and I particularly need to cherish our elderly. We may be closer to it than some of our listeners, Uh, but there's a fount of wisdom uh, across the generations, uh, and there's issues that particularly affect older people, uh, and we've explored some of them. Last word or two, Peter.
1: Can I just follow up by that? I was in a a nursing home a couple of weeks ago uh, chatting to people who had memory problems, and there's one lady in particular who who sticks in my mind who'd worked at Bletchley during the war, um, was able to tell me some wonderful stories. So absolutely cherish our older people. They, They have a lifetime of experience and wisdom, and you know often when we're younger we disregard that but if people just listen to what people have got to say they can they can tell us fascinating stories they still have rich lives and a lot of living to do whatever age we are
0: absolutely lucy pollock says that cher- says cherish your elderly they're like ming vases they there's a lot of richness and beauty in them but they may be a little fragile so just look after them carefully Peter, it's been a delight talking to you.
1: And thank you so much for sharing much of
0: your wisdom on this topic.
1: Thank you, Andrew. It's very kind of you to invite me. It's uh, it's interesting being this side of the microphone. Lovely.
0: Thank you very much, everybody, for listening and all the very best. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by our team of doctors from NHS Somerset, including Dr. Andrew Drusida, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Cooper. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.